Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. And welcome back to the program again today. And thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us again as we continue teaching this incredible series out of the book of Romans. If you've been following us the last several weeks, we've been talking about the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. And I just want to review just a little bit as we launch into chapter 8. I know I did cover this some last week, but it's impossible not to connect these two chapters because they are so interlinked. Once again, I can't stress enough to you how when you read the book of Romans or many of these letters to the church, you need to remember, or not just to the church, but letters that were written, that they are letters. And many times what we do is we read a chapter, we lay it down, two weeks later we come back, we read another chapter. But if you received a letter from me and you uh, read the first paragraph and you waited a month to read the next paragraph, after a while you lose the context of what is being said. So these books are really meant, these letters are really meant to be read in one sitting because they interconnect, and it is a theme all the way through the book of Romans. And we've been talking about in the first uh, parts of the book of Romans, it is the diagnosis of the human condition, as in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the whole purpose is to conclude all under sin so He can have mercy on all, both Jew and Gentile, and bring us to the realization that we need a Savior. Then as you come into 4, 5, 6, and 7, and 8, and as we go on through here, we're going to see not only uh, the uh, diagnosis, we're going to see the deliverance, because it starts out by talking about how Abraham, by faith, believe God, it was counted to him for righteousness. We see chapter 5 where, uh, you know, one man did it wrong, got us in all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life. And then he comes into chapter 6 and says, you know, we've got this aggressive forgiveness called grace, but should we continue in sin so that grace can abound and God forbid. And we talked about then uh, last week, we talked about how uh, Romans 7 talks about when you were under the law, uh, you were married to that old man, and that uh, in, in chapter 4 that we should be, I'm sorry, in verse 4 of Romans 7, we should be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead. And then Paul begins to describe the life of a person under the law. I can't stress this enough. Because a lot of people, and I can remember even myself thinking this at one time, that especially the latter part of Romans 7 that we're going to spring forward from to end today's segment, is in the latter part of Romans 7, it starts talking about when I wanted to do good, evil was present with me, and what I hated is what I found myself doing. And what I wanted to do, which was good, I couldn't find the ability to do it. And so he ends in utter desperation by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, of this body of death? 
Now, if you remember the context, that, that, that Romans 7 is not the plight of the Christian journey. It is not a roller coaster ride of when I want to do good, evil is present with me. It, that condition of up and down, in and out, want to do good, evil is present, and what I want to do, I can't seem to perform, is not the struggle and the plight of the Christian journey. It is the struggle and plight of a man who is still trying to do it by the works of the law. Because Paul declared in that seventh chapter that I was alive once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And so he begins to tell you, even in 1 Corinthians 15, the last few verses says that the law is the strength of sin, and it's what gives death a sting. But we have been delivered from that bondage and from the bondage of the law. But now I want to stress that as we move into Romans 8, that the transition here is we are moving from servants to sons. Now, under the law, you were a slave and a servant. But in the new covenant, you're a son and an heir. And in the new covenant, you have this life of God working in us. And Paul is going to talk about the contrast between the law-governed life in Romans 7 and the spirit-governed life in Romans chapter 8. And while a lot of people will preach many times the freedom from the law, uh, which is powerfully there, they don't also include the next step, which is learning how to live by the government of Holy Spirit, where it's a divine resource and a divine supply. You see, the law was full of demand, but the new covenant is full of supply. And so when you receive the supply of the Spirit, Paul is going to tell you what it is that begins to deliver us from the dilemma of this roller coaster ride. And when he's talking about who shall deliver me, from the body of this death, I think there's two things that could be mentioned here. I think that he could be mentioned that the body is talking about the body of the law, the whole body of the law, and it's also talking about the flesh, which was the old man. But I'm going to show you a contrast as we come on down through this, that being in the flesh is not only I had a bad thought Saturday night, but I want to show you as we get down through this chapter just a little bit further, that being in the flesh means you are trying to do this through human strength and effort and a self-help programs, which is what most of religion is about. It's just self-help books written with a Christian spin that still put the pressure on you to produce something you cannot produce. But what Paul is declaring is, who will deliver me from the body of this death. And he says his, 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 his joyous uh, declaration at the end of Romans 7 is, thank God he will. Now let me tell you something, that really gives me great confidence to realize that my confidence is not in the flesh. My confidence is in his ability to produce it. And I can't help but think about even where Paul would say, you know, I believe it is in Philippians 3, if, you, if anybody has any right to have confidence in the flesh, in the flesh, I the more, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, 
a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and as touching the law, I was blameless. Paul called that his showing in the flesh. Because what he's showing is that what he was able to produce through human strength really ended up making uh, a religious Pharisee out of him that would have to ultimately declare that he would say that I count all of that as dung, that I might win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is a product of the law, but a righteousness which is through the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just again springboard from that as we have already reviewed just a bit there, Romans 7. If you haven't seen them, go back and watch them on our YouTube channel or listen to the audio portions on the podcast. But Romans 8 verse 1 says, and I'm reading this from the Message Bible because it it kind of gets clear. I'm going to read several translations on some things. It said, with the arrival of Jesus, now remember, he's springboarding from Romans 7. Who will deliver me? from the body of this death. I thank God that He will. And so he says, with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. What is the fateful dilemma? It's the dilemma that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. And what I want to do, I don't seem to be able to perform. And it's this roller coaster ride of up and down. And then when the commandment comes, sin revives, I died. And it leaves me in this feeling of, oh, wretched man that I am. See, what I think is, even as you, uh, and I'm not teaching Galatians right now, but we may come to that uh, in a few weeks. We might teach that next. Who knows? But, you know, when he tells them in Galatians 3, he said the law is not of faith. It doesn't take faith. See, the law shuts up faith. But when we begin to realize that when we believe and trust him to do it, then our confidence is not in the flesh, as Paul talked about his deliverance from that in Philippians. If you want to have confidence in the flesh, he said, I'm more. In other words, if you want to show your religious credentials, look at my religious credentials as touching the law. I was blameless. Paul calls that his show in the flesh. And we're going to deal with that a little bit more as we get down through here. But he's talking again here about the fateful dilemma of the roller coaster ride of up and down in and out Christianity. And once again, what I began to see was the more that I sat under legalism, the more I sat under uh, law preaching, the more it shut up my faith, as I just shared with you a few moments ago. I, I, I got to the place where, and, and this is a struggle with a lot of people. They don't even believe they're saved. And because we get so many do's and don'ts involved and in that our salvation is predicated on the basis of, did I cross every T, dos every I? Did I keep all of the rules? And then we got this, he loves me, he loves me not mentality. And I hope he dies on, I hope I die on, he loves me. Or if I mess up one time, then I've lost my salvation. I can remember living in that horrible dilemma. And finally coming to the place where I thought, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore because every time I would go to church, it was need-based, man-centered, how I was always lost. And the, uh, the whole goal was to get us in the altar to repent constantly over and over and over for the same things. And I'm not against repentance. I'm just saying that what, uh, you know, what they did was they talked me out of my salvation and preached rules until it shut up faith. I didn't believe I was saved anymore. And then I got to this point where I thought, well, you know what? If I'm if I'm if I'm lost, then at least I'm gonna. I, I just finally got the place. I can't live this, and that is so many times 
The story you will hear from people who've been raised under these religious ideas is, I would come to church, but I can't live it. To which I reply, welcome to the club. None of us can. That's why we need his life and not ours. See, he didn't just give his life for me. He gave his life to me. And if I've got any sense at all, I will let him live his life through me so that when Christ, who is my life, he's not a part of my life, he is my life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. So I'm not talking about living a, uh, a, an ungodly life. I'm talking about what gives us the ability to live this life and what solves this fateful dilemma as Romans 8 begins to talk about Messiah, then we begin to live a life governed by Holy Spirit. Now let me read again. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. Now, uh, 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 Romans 8 verse 1 in the uh, King James Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And then the King James adds something that's not in the original text. I looked at it yesterday. It says, for those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's not in the original language. It simply reads, it's, it simply reads, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me say, as we go on down to this, he's going to talk about walking in the Spirit, but he does not leave uh, a clause there that kind of wants to throw you off. Yeah, but if you walk in the Spirit. No, no, he's saying there is no condemnation. Now that doesn't mean that, some, that, that, that there's not things that we do that are wrong. It means that he's not passing a sentence against us. When I think about condemnation and being condemned, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit dealing with our lives to get us to change. I'm talking about there is no passing of sentence of doom and death and the sentence of death that comes through the law. Because when the law is no longer in operation, you cannot condemn me on the basis of an antiquated law. And the fact that, that we're not stoning people to death for things like adultery and for things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, for lying and so forth, or not keeping the Sabbath or whatever, tells me that there's no sentence that's being executed. Now, does that mean those things are, are okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you that what he's saying is that he does not pass a sentence against us, that, there, that we are beyond his remedy or hope. Let me put it like this. Here's how I like to think about condemnation. You know, back a few years ago, there was a big flood in West Virginia, in southern West Virginia, Many houses were flooded, uh, you know, and there was mud in the houses, and mold began to reek throughout the house. And, and uh, uh, the health department would go to some of those houses and it would post on this house, do not enter danger, this property is condemned. That means if, it's, if the property is condemned, it is uninhabitable. It's condemned property. It cannot be inhabited. Here's what I hear through that. Just because you've had some problems in your life does not mean you are uninhabitable. It means that you need to let somebody move into this house that is not condemned. 
And that one who needs to live in this house is Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit living and abiding inside of us. Because what's happening is we pass a sentence on people for their behavior rather than give them the Jesus that can lift them up and change their behavior. And I think last uh, week we might have talked about God's new creation. I think uh, at least before that, probably Romans 6, we talked about God's new creation project. Because sin and the God dealing with sin is not so we can get from here to there, but so we can get what's happening there to operate here. It's to get the kingdom of God and the government of heaven and the resources of heaven and the responses and the joy and the peace and the righteousness and the justice of heaven to live in our lives right now. See, we have made the gospel about a ticket to heaven, and I can't tell you, uh, I can't, you know, well, let me just, you know, I'll share a story a few years back, many years ago now, probably 10 years or better. I was doing a conference in Oklahoma City, and there was a, a dear saint that we knew that was in the hospital, and she was on her deathbed. And we went to visit with her before she passed, and she said to me in the hospital, she looked, she said, Brother Howell, she said, pray for me that in my final moments, I don't foul up and have an evil thought and miss heaven. And I'm thinking to myself, this was a lady that was faithful to the house of God. She came Sunday, Wednesday, she was there. She served God her whole life. And I thought to myself, if all of these years in church has made her so insecure in her salvation that she thought it was volatile enough to lose, in the final few moments of her life, something's wrong with what we're teaching. I looked at her and I said, sis, you ought to high-five me and say, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I'm about to storm the gates of glory. Because my salvation is not dependent upon me alone. It is dependent on what he did to save me. I am not my Savior. Jesus is my Savior. And he is still saving me. And he's still bringing the kingdom into this reality. So when he's saying there's therefore now no condemnation, what he's saying is there's not a passing of sentence on you throughout this struggle, but that you are not inhabitable. Then he comes on to say, he said, for, he said, this fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. Watch this. A new power is in operation. A new power. The old power was what? Legalism and law. But a new power is in operation. The old one was the law of sin and death. The new one is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Now watch this. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. In other words, you don't have to continue in those old behaviors either. Because not only did he deliver you from condemnation, see, a lot of people glad they're not under condemnation, and they're like, well, I'm, I'm not condemned, so I can keep on doing anything I want to do. But he's not saying that. He's saying that there's a new power in operation, that the, the spirit of life in Christ 
has made us free. It's like a strong wind. The spirit of life from God has, uh, you know, the spirit of God has begun to move into our lives, freeing us from this faded life of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. He's delivered us from the strength of all of those things that keep on trapping us in the dilemma of Romans 7, that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. It is moving into a spirit-governed life. And then he says, God went for the juggler when he sent his own son. I love that. God went for the juggler when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code Weakened as it always was, fractured by human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code, what now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver is accomplished. As we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Now, that is a powerful piece of Scripture there. Jesus personally took on the human condition, came down, wrapped himself in human flesh, and died, not just to make God happy, but to take your sin and my sin. He wasn't doing it because God needed somebody to beat up on. He was doing it because he took on the human condition himself. And while he was here, condemned sin in the flesh and dealt with sin. It was nailed to the cross, a decisive end, as the message Bible would say to that sin, miserable life, always at the tyranny of the hands of sin and death. He personally took on the human condition, was tested, tried every way that we were. He just entered this disordered mess of struggling humanity and uh, did what the, it, the law code could only do that was weakened as it was through fractured human nature, could never have done that. And I love this view. It says the law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of the deep healing of it. Now, let me just tell you this. This is so powerful to me, is that the law, once again, is a, is a perfect piece of work. It is good stuff. But when you use it as a Band-Aid, I, I, one of these days I'm going to do a message, and I'm going to buy a whole thing of Band-Aids. And I'm just going to have somebody stand up, and I'm going to start going down through preaching against stuff and talking about all of these self-help programs we have. And I'm going to stick Band-Aids on everybody. And then I'm going to sing that old commercial. I'm stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck on me. And then I'm going to start ripping those Band-Aids off because sometimes that's what our ministry has been, has been a Band-Aid ripping ministry because it may hurt at first to begin to remove those Band-Aids, but to just easy peel it and easy peel it and easy peel it takes a lot of pain. And one of the biggest pain that the Christian world is going through right now is the transition from realizing that the law is a Band-Aid on sin and not the deep healing of it. Now, let me just say this to you. You know, one of the things that I, I've, I've declared all along is that, so you see, the law, according to Romans, we'll get over in there a little bit further, <coughs> but in Romans 12, uh, the, the law can bring you into conformity. Law will make people bring behavior changes. Law can conform, but grace 
will transform. And when Paul writes in Romans 12, and we'll get there sooner or later, he's saying, be not conformed, conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. There's a lot of people right now that are behaving who've never had their heart transformed. They've had their behavior modified, but they've never had their heart transformed. One of the things that I saw as I was teaching the series back some time ago on uh, Joshua and the book of Jericho is that there was a generation that came out of Egypt and they, they weren't circumcised. Now, I understand in the New Covenant, we're not dealing with circumcision in the natural, but the Lord began to show me a parallel. that there's a, there's, there's, Especially since the message of grace has been taught now for some years, there's a generation who have come out of bondage, they've come out of legalism, they've come out of the servitude of slave system, of Egyptian bondage, of religion, if I can say it like that. And they've come through the wilderness journey, and it's case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be, and we think behavior anyway is okay, and uh, it is important in the context of does it bring the kingdom into your life. But there's a generation that's never had the circumcision. When I started seeing that, I'm not thinking about not circumcision in the natural, but their hearts have never really been circumcised. But only Holy Spirit can circumcise the heart. And as I started many, many years ago preaching grace, and begin to encounter people who were testing the waters of freedom and their newfound freedom, that I, I became concerned and I said, Lord, am I preaching something that's causing people to sin? And that's the accusation that our critics say. But I, the Lord said to me, no, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do because Hebrews, the fourth chapter says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder between soul and spirit, is a discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. Neither is there anything that's not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so he said, what's happening is the word that is sharp and powerful, <coughs> excuse me, is not just any word. It's the word that flows from rest. That's the context there. Labor to enter into rest. Because the word that flows from rest and the climate of freedom is the only place where what's in people's hearts really surfaces. In other words, if you came into grace and you stopped giving because you found out you're not under a curse anymore, it was never in your heart to give. If you started to go back to some of the other stuff that you were doing, your heart hasn't been circumcised. Your heart has not been transformed. You were conformed and you conformed to a set of rules. But see, what happens is, is that grace reveals what's in the heart so that God can bring us boldly to a throne, not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace, where we will find mercy and a faithful high priest who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities and who is able to succor us in our time of struggle. So that he doesn't just stand on the outside and say, here's the rules. He comes and takes up his abode inside of us and removes the band-aids of self-help religion to be able to enter into this uh, spirit-governed life instead of redoubling our own efforts, this verse says, and trying hard and getting up one more time and pulling up your bootstraps. It is him saying, you need to, uh, instead of redoubling your own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. And so, you know, that, that to me is a powerful concept of what we need to do, understanding the Spirit-governed life is entering into what He's doing in us, because as He reveals our heart, we have a faithful high priest who can circumcise the heart so that we lose our desire 
for sin and the things that are actually destroying our life. And it's not, again, sin is not the issue of what it does to God. It's what it does to us and the people that are around us. Well, we're about to run out of time. If you would like to sow something into the ministry to, um, you know, help support what we're doing, please do that by going to the website. There's a place where you can give via credit card uh, through our PayPal portal. You can set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner or give a one-time gift. You can also send a check or money order to the address that will come up on the screen or you can call uh, the number that will come on the screen, and someone will take your call. But we do need your help, so do it today. Get behind what we're doing. We appreciate it. God bless you. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.